0: Welcome to the week after Easter, uh, Easter, whatever, 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 whatever celebration we just had, Thanksgiving. Um, anyways, we are, I know for sure we are moving into Advent. So that's what I want to talk real briefly about here today, today is two things happening. Number one, it is the first day moving into the season of Advent. Number two, it's one of uh, several, what we call family style services. The reason why we do family style services, like right now, we have kids in here, they're a little bit shorter, um, is because if you just look around, San Luis changes during certain uh, seasonal holidays. This is one of those seasonal holidays where a lot of people, a lot of our church family are typically out of town. And so we kind of adjust. We pivot accordingly. So that's what today is all about. So if there are little ones around and... Uh, Uh, You're not used to that. That's typically because we do not have children typically within the service. Um, They're always, you know, welcome, but we create spaces for them um, to be trained and taught the ways of Jesus in their own little unique facets. So uh, today, what I want to do right now is we kind of move into what we call Advent. I want to talk a little bit briefly as to why we do this. So throughout church history, even though this is not necessarily something that's mandated in the Bible... As something that Christians are to do. Christians throughout history have spent time, the four weeks coming up to Christmas, to pause, to reflect upon what God has done in this season. We call this Advent. The word Advent literally just means arrival or coming. Um, It's a way for us to remember as Christians what God did by coming into this world. But we also do something as well where we look to the future where one day God says his son will come back again. So we kind of find ourselves in sort of like this middle season looking back, but also at the same time looking forward. And so, um, as we move into the next four weeks of Advent, what um, we've—I I actually created a little Advent guide for you guys. I have a little slide right here. Um, if you would like to access this, you just got to scan the little code. Um, I was going to try to print some out, but our printers are consistently and constantly uh, one thing uh, that's perennially happening is they will never work. So I was going to try to print some out for you, so you can have them available. But like luck would have it. They didn't work again. So here you go. You got the slide up here. Go ahead and scan that. Um, Or if you are my Facebook friend, just go to my Facebook page. I also added this link up there as well. It's filled with resources. It's something that hopefully is all pretty self-explanatory for you. My hope would be that it would bless you and your community or family or whatever it is, a group of people that you'll be doing this week with on a weekly basis. So for the next four weeks, we're going to basically be looking at the passage, John 3.16. Most of you guys probably should already know it by heart. If you don't know it, it's simply because you're not trying. It's as simple as that. Like John 3.16 is one of those like phrases or passages that everybody knows, even if you're not a Christian, like you know John 3.16. I'm going to read it just a moment. It will probably resonate with you. You'll probably recognize it. But um, each week, we're going to be looking at a little movement within this greater passage and all within the main context of trying to understand uh, what it means for God to come into this world. We'll look at basically four different words or themes, if you want to think about it that way, that I think are relevant not only to God coming to this world through Jesus, but themes that are also really Really relevant for us right now in this season. Again, if uh, you're, you're paying attention, you realize our world is in a pretty bad state today. It's pretty messy right now. A lot of chaos. A lot of brokenness. A lot of things that are just not right in this world. And as a result of that, that creates all forms of emotions and chaos and stress and anxiety, meaninglessness for you and I as we try to make our way through this world. And what the promise of Christmas is all about is it reminds us that God actually cares about this world. If one thing you take away from this entire season is that God actually loves this planet. Anything material in this planet, God loves. He created this. Now, I, I realize a lot within our Christian context has kind of taught the Christian world, the Christian mindset to think that God cares only about spirit and God does not really like flesh. That is completely false. That is a false narrative that needs to be rejected because it is not found in the Bible. God cares about, from page one in the Bible, he cares about this planet. So much so that God actually stepped into his own creation. That's what the story of Christmas is all about. God becoming one. God uniting the physicality of this planet Earth and all the cosmos to himself. God infusing with life and beauty and goodness because God cares about it. So what I want for us to begin to think about as we jump into this is the importance of all this. I want to read John 3.16. Again, um, we'll meditate upon this. And if you've never memorized this before, now's the time to just begin to memorize this and to begin to think about this. Make this a part of your understanding of the makeup of what God is up to in this world. So John 3.16, I'll just read it, and then we'll jump on into the next thing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So each week, we'll take a look at a little movement. The first movement, we'll take a look at just today, the phrase, for God, God. And what I want for us to really think about today is the theme of hope. What does it mean to have hope in this world? And before we jump into another little passage, I want to read to you about the story of the life of Mary. I want to watch a little video from our friends at the Bible Project that have a great little uh, series on Advent. And the first one is on hope. So let's go ahead and watch this little video clip.
1: So let's say you want to describe the feeling of anticipating a future that's better than the present. You might be giddy or excited or maybe unsure, but most of us know that experience. We call it hope. It's a state of anticipation, and it's crucial for healthy human existence. And it's a really important concept in the Bible. In fact, there are many words for hope in the ancient languages of the Bible, and they're all fascinating. In the Old Testament, there are two main Hebrew words translated as hope. The first is yachal, which means simply to wait for. Like in the story of Noah and the ark, as the flood waters recede, Noah had to yachal for weeks. The other Hebrew word is kava, which also means to wait. It's related to the Hebrew word kav, which means cord. When you pull a kav tight, you produce a state of tension until there's release. That's kava. The feeling of tension and expectation while you wait for something to happen. The prophet Isaiah depicts God as a farmer who plants vines and kavahs for good grapes. Or the prophet Micah talks about farmers who both kavah and yachal for morning dew to give moisture to the land. So in biblical Hebrew, hope is about waiting or expectation. But waiting for what? In the period of Israel's prophets, as the nation was sinking into self-destruction, Isaiah said, at this moment, the Lord's hiding his face from Israel, so I will kavah for him. The only hope Isaiah had in those dark days was the hope for God himself. You find this same notion of hope all over the book of Psalms, where these words appear over 40 times. In almost every case, what people are waiting for is God. Like in Psalm 130, the poet cries out from a pit of despair, I kava for the Lord, let Israel yachal for the Lord, because he's loyal and will redeem Israel from its sins. <laughs> biblical hope is based on a person, which makes it different from optimism. Optimism is about choosing to see, in any situation, how circumstances could work out for the best. But biblical hope is not focused on circumstances. In fact, hopeful people in the Bible often recognize there's no evidence things will get better. But you choose hope anyway. Like the prophet Hosea. He lived in a dark time when Israel was being oppressed by foreign empires. And he chose hope when he said God could turn this valley of trouble into a door of hope. Like the day when Israel came up from the land of Egypt. God had surprised his people with redemption back in the days of the Exodus and he could do so again. So it's God's past faithfulness that motivates hope for the future. You look forward by looking backward, trusting in nothing other than God's character. It's like the poet of Psalm 39 who says, And now, O Lord, what else can I kavah for? You are my yachal. In the New Testament, the earliest followers of Jesus cultivated this similar habit of hope. They believed that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was God's surprising response to our slavery to evil and death. The empty tomb opened up a new door of hope, and they used the Greek word elpis to describe this anticipation. The apostle Peter said that Jesus' resurrection opened up a living hope that people can be reborn to become new and different kinds of humans. So Christian hope is bold, waiting for humanity and the whole universe to be rescued from evil and death. And some would say it's crazy, and maybe it is. But biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. It's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. And so we wait. That's what the biblical words for hope are all about.
0: God, every single Sunday, every time they gathered, uh, since the earliest days of the Christian church. So it was a part of their typical recitation of the scripture. Uh, another thing I found that was kind of interesting as well is that this is actually the longest set of words ever spoken by a woman throughout the entire New Testament. So it's the longest recorded, like, entry uh, of a a female just stating something really of great significance. Um, The third thing I thought that was interesting as well is obviously the very first Christmas carol ever uh, composed, right? Some of us get nostalgic over this time. We like Christmas music. We start even playing Christmas music long before Thanksgiving even happens. That's how nostalgic you are about it. This is actually the oldest uh, Christmas carol ever composed, the first one. Uh, another thing that's kind of interesting for you uh, theological nerds is that this song actually echoes Old Testament passage out of First Samuel chapter two. It's the story of Hannah. If you're familiar with her, um, some of the words that. Mary uh, places within her song actually echo this Old Testament passage, which means that she was no doubt familiar with these this historic story of Hannah. Uh, again, I, I like to say it this way, that uh, Mary saw herself not just as some sort of individual trying to make her way through planet Earth. She saw herself as this part of this longer historic narrative by which Yahweh God was her God and Israel were her people. That's different than our culture that just says, you know, I'm an American or I'm an individual or I'm just discovering my authentic self. That at some point will run its course and will leave you empty. Mary, on the other hand, is like, no, I belong to Israel. I'm part of this historic, ancient family in which God has intervened and taken care of us uh, from now in this moment in my life and throughout all time and throughout my entire future. That's who I am. That's who she saw herself. And then lastly, this was also a really interesting one. Over the past hundred years, there were at least three separate instances in in which actual governments banned this song from being sung. Uh, This was really interesting to me. Uh, During the British rule throughout India, this song was actually banned because people actually were singing this, and they saw this as sort of subversive, um, anti-governmental literature. Think about that. Um, also within Guatemala throughout the 1980s, uh, this song was actually banned. Mary's words about God's preferential love for the poor, uh, it was considered dangerous and revolutionary. Um, it was actually stated that Mary's words were inspiring to Guatemalan uh, poor people uh, who believed that change was actually possible. Just think about that. They looked to this song and were like, oh my gosh, change is a possibility. Oh my gosh, God cares about the poor. Oh my gosh, God actually is looking out for those that have been forgotten by the government. And so the Guatemalan government were like, Banned. If if you're caught reading this, or caught subscribing to this, or caught believing this, we will do something really bad to you. And then throughout Argentina, also the same similar types of revolutions were happening, that this literature was actually banned. Think about that. They saw this as a threat to their own power and privilege. Um... One theologian actually, actually put it this way. I thought this was really interesting. She said this. Don't envision Mary as a radiant woman peacefully composing the Magnificat. Instead, see her as a girl who sings defiantly to her God through her tears. Fists clenched against an unknown future. I don't know how you think about Mary in this moment. Again, I think nostalgia has this tendency to try to like glamorize Mary like, "Ah, oh, silent night, how beautiful, how peaceful, what an amazing life, what a incredible privilege Mary was given and bestowed. you know we all use all this like religious language. she was bestowed upon by God, but the fact of the matter, she was a single teenager who was pregnant in a male dominated society. We know how women were thought upon in the first century, let alone. A single teenage pregnant woman that had no one to point to and say, This is my husband. Mary at this moment was probably facing thoughts of someone's gonna kill me. If I'm found out. So one of the reasons why it actually says of her husband, or Joseph, before he actually married her, says that he's, he determined not to put her away. When he finds out, my 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 girlfriend is pregnant. Rather than putting her away, rather than casting her off, rather than leaving her, he says, I'm going to marry because the Holy Spirit comes to him as well and begins to speak to him about the importance of this. And then he, he marries her. But the point of the matter is, is that to be a single pregnant woman in that culture and have no husband to point to puts you in incredible threat of your own livelihood. And that, that's interesting to me because this quote-unquote blessing to marry was incredibly so was a blessing, was also, it came with this like sense of like a burden. We oftentimes think of God's blessings as things that are just like lift us off of the ground and fill us with this incredible sense of like honor and privilege and whatnot. But the fact of the matter is for Mary, this blessing was actually, it was, it was intense. It had weightiness to her. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you're familiar with him, He was a preacher uh, throughout Nazi Germany, and he actually was executed by Hitler and his uh, regime. And in Advent sermon in 1933, he actually spoke this in his sermon. He says this, The Song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say most revolutionary Advent hymn hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This song was, uh, this song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. So what's going on here? What The Christmas story first of all tells us very clearly is that God causes the impossible to happen on behalf of a woman that was just faithful to God. And I think about the idea of hope. What does hope involve? So in other words, let's bring this into our world right now because we live in a world that is constantly pushing against our ability to have hope, which means the opposite of hope is despair. Many of us have just resigned ourselves to despair. To despair and find ourselves in that place where we don't know where else to go or where else to turn or how to handle the chaos and the pain and the consistent inconsistency of our world. We, we oftentimes find ourselves uh, the only times uh, finding that there's a stay to the types of inconsistencies and the chaos that we have in our world by either numbing our own hearts and our minds by way of just mindlessly scrolling through uh, social media. Um, We have so many different ways to try to distract us from what's happening. But the point that I'd make is this, is that the alternative to all of this is to look to a God who causes the impossible to happen. And that's exactly what Mary does. So I think there's three things that kind of play into sort of bringing together this concept of of hope. Number one, it involves a God who is present. A God who is present. Not who's absent not far away, it's important to understand that, first of all, that's what Advent, the idea of Christmas, tells us, is that God actually steps into his creation. He cares about his creation. He hasn't pushed it off to the side, pushed it off to the edges. God actually cares about it enough to where he steps into it. So number one, we see that God is present. Number two, God's promises in times past point to the fact that he will also make good on his promises in the future. And this is what, no doubt, Mary was able to look at. To realize, that again, because she's part of this long history of people that are, quote-unquote, God's people, she knew that God intervened, God steps in to help those that are helpless. At the end of the day, what we need more than anything is not just simply a pep talk as we come together as a church. My job is not like the chief pep talk talker. Like, and nor do we need just a, a brow lashing. We don't need to be told all the things that we're doing horribly and mucking up and failing on. What we don't need is more condemnation. What we need is gospel. We need good news. We need God to just speak and say, here's what I'm up to. Here's what I do for those that can't do for themselves. And that's what the story of Christmas actually begins to point us towards, is a God of hope. It involves his nearness involves him making good on his promises, and then thirdly involves really an agent who then places their confidence in both the person and the promise of God. So in other words, for hope to be activated in your life, to put it to simple terms, is you and I have to step back and just say, do I believe that God is present? Do I trust this? Do I believe that God's promises are true and good, and will I trust this? Now again, what I find so fascinating about the story of Mary is that she's singing this song, she has not yet even had a baby, but she's declaring this to be true. Why? Because God told her it was to be true. Think about that. What are those areas in our lives that maybe what God's inviting us into is to just trust Him? Sometimes that looks like singing a song to him, just declaring his goodness, even when it doesn't feel like God is good. Have you ever had moments like that in your life? Where you're just like, I don't even really know if God's good. Look at my life. Everything in my life points to badness. It's not good. It's broken. It's marred. It's stained. It's filled with despair and pain and hurt and anxiety and all of these things. And yet, in the midst of that, you make this Pointed decision to say, and yet God is good. Not just as some sort of weird, hopeful, speaking into existence something that's not there. But rather it's simply you saying, even though right now I don't see it, I know that God is good. I know that God will somehow bring me through this. I know that God's purposes, God's plan for my life is somehow going to come to pass because I know his track record. I know his nearness. I know he's not abandoned planet Earth to its devices and destruction because I know the story that he enters into it. And that's what Advent's all about. It begins with an acknowledgement that God is both present And that his promises are true. And then lastly, it ends with that invitation for me to trust in him. So as we close right now, I'm going to have Dan come on up. We're going to just sing one final chorus of a song that we had sung earlier. And I want to invite us all to just stand right now. And let's lift up our voices as as an act of, I I like the idea of defiant proclamation. a, A way of just defying the odds and saying, I will worship God in spite of. You know, I think of, in terms of defiance, I think of Daniel and his three friends, right? Actually, his three friends, Daniel wasn't with him, but Daniel, Daniel's three friends are walking through the furnace. And just before they go into that, they basically make this defiant, bold claim to the king Nebuchadnezzar. He's like, Look, even if you throw us in the prison, that we will then potentially be burnt to death. We know that our God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't deliver us, we're still not going to better our to you. When we talk about defiance, that's defiantly saying our God is good no matter what. You can kill us. You can take our lives. It doesn't change the fact that God is good. It doesn't change the fact that God is still with us in this moment. And that's the invitation for us today in our relationship to hope. And I want to be really clear on this because if we choose to not look at hope through this lens, your only alternative, guys, is despair. There's really no two ways about it. Despair is really what we move into. Or various forms of despair, varying degrees of despair. But at the end of the day, the option for us is clear, set before us. that says, trust me, God would say, And I'll give you what you need. I'll help you. And not only that, but you will be part of this long lineage of people that have against the odds, defied the opposition, and placed confidence in me, and I proved them faithful every single time. So that's the invitation for us now. To think about where we are in relation to the concept of hope and to confess whatever disparities are in our heart between us and God. Confess that, repent from that, turn from that, and then turn it around into confidence and trust in the one that has proven himself. So let me pray and let's respond in song. God, thank you for your great love and we just invite you now to reshape our hearts to become like yours in confidence and trust in you.